The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the Rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Let's look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. Moses writes, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahuyel, and Mahuyel fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives, the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain, he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, it is hard to believe in many respects that we have now arrived at the end of chapter 4. We have learned so much, so much here in this first story that you have been telling us. We've learned, first of all, that 
this story is not just a historical account, something that was written long ago for people who have been dead now for thousands of years. It, it is a living story, a story that is alive with truth from you. It has been written to help us understand who you are and what you're doing in this world. It's been written to help us understand ourselves and to understand ultimately our need for Christ. And so we thank you, Father, for all that we have learned over these past weeks and months here in this first story from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through the end of, of chapter 4. It has been a blessing to see this unfolded before us. And today, Lord, we come to finish out this understanding. And so we ask you to open our hearts and our eyes to be able to see who you are and what this plan is that you have for us to see these truths that will here dictate everything else that we're going to read from this moment forward until the end of the Scriptures. This is a critical passage for us, Father. And so I pray that we will be attentive to it. Help us to see ourselves in your larger plan. Do not be myopic and just think that everything in our spiritual life is just about us. We are your people. That's who we are. This is our identity. And so I pray, Father, that we will appreciate that more than we ever have because of what we see this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I belong to uh, some unique people groups that you are familiar with, at least some of them. For example, I'm, I'm, I'm a member of the Table Saw Survivors uh, United Group. I join mainly because you can see from their slogan that they're about public awareness. That's all. Um, all right, thank you. I, I also belong to the uh, Tailbone Breakers Anonymous group, which meets first Tuesday night of every month and is normally fun except when we play musical chairs. That, uh, that always adds a new component to the game. I'm not really happy about being a part of either of those two groups, but there is one group I am very happy about that I did not make a silly picture for, and that is the No Traffic Ticket group. How many of you are members of the No Traffic Ticket group? Raise your hand. There's like five of us. Excellent. It's not that I haven't gotten any traffic tickets, it's just that none of them have stuck. So the, I've gotten three, actually. The first one came uh, right before Jamie and I got married. I was here uh, looking for an apartment, and I was out on Centerville Turnpike in Chesapeake. And this was back in the day when this part of Centerville Turnpike had nothing around. It was just open fields. And back home, when you're driving on a country road with open fields on either side, it's 55 miles per hour. But not in Chesapeake. It's 45 miles per hour. And so the police officer pulled me over and kindly told me what the real speed limit was and gave me a ticket. And since I didn't live here, and since we were getting married, and since mainly I didn't have any money, I decided to write a letter to the judge asking to be uh, let off of the ticket. So I pleaded no contest and explained that I was ignorant and I'm just moving to the area and I didn't know better and please forgive me, I've got a perfect driving record. And I called the traffic court later that day and lo and behold, he had dismissed the ticket. So praise you, thank you Lord. The next ticket came not long after we moved here, right after we got married. We wanted pizza, which at that point in our marriage, considering how much money we had, was equivalent to Ruth Chris at that time. And so we scraped together every penny we had to order a large Papa John's sausage pizza. 
And it was the one on Battlefield Boulevard down across the Great Bridge Bridge near Cedar Road. And at that time, the, the Great Bridge Bridge, which if you're from out of town, and I know that sounds redundant, but that's what it's called, was only two lanes, even though the road leading to it and from it is four lanes. And so I was in the right-hand lane on Battlefield Boulevard going south, trying to cross the bridge. I couldn't get over because no one would let me over. And eventually that right lane turned to a solid white line with arrows saying right turn only. But I was still trying to get over to the left across the bridge, and finally I got a break and I took it, only to see three cars behind me, a Chesapeake police officer who felt that my actions were not justified and therefore gave me a ticket for violating posted traffic signs. Since I'd had good luck with the first ticket, I thought I'd go into court and try it again. And lo and behold, the day I showed up, the officer in question was sick, and since he wasn't present, they just dismissed it with no questions. Case dismissed. I was out of two. My third one is perhaps a little more on the, uh, uh, well, let's just put it this way. The first two, I think I had valid reasons for getting out of. The third one, I don't know about. Third one uh, came when I was driving a vending truck. When we first got married, I, I filled vending machines. I've talked about that before. And uh, I had gone to this little office off of Cleveland Street in Virginia Beach. It was the checkered flag processing office. So no customers came there. So just for their employees. It was tiny with a tiny parking lot. You don't just accidentally go to this office. You have to purposely drive there. And the only reason you drive there is if you work there. But they had a little vending machine. I had to go fill it. And on this particular day I pulled up, there were no empty parking spaces except for one, which was the handicap space. Yeah, I know. Some of you are like, oh, don't do that. Yeah. Well, my option was do that or block the entire parking lot off. And so I thought that was the worst offense. So I decided to back into the handicap spot. It was five minutes. That's all I needed, five minutes. I ran inside. I'm starting to fill the machine. And the receptionist comes in and says, hey, I think you're getting a ticket. And I walk out. And this time it's not a police officer. It's a community patrol officer, community service officer. Why are you laughing? Have you interacted with these people before? If you went to a small college like I did, you might know the, the mentality because at our college, the, um, the security guards felt very empowered and authoritative because they had flashlights. <laughs> the community service officer didn't even carry a gun. He, he just had a blue shirt and he was, I think his whole job, his name was Officer Day, I'll never forget him. Uh, I think Officer Day's whole job was to go around and look for people who were criminals, hardened criminals like myself, who parked in handicap spots. I, I come out of there, he's not even done writing the ticket, and I'm, I, I'll move. Please, can I just move? I'm so sorry. I explained why I had parked there. He's like, yeah, too bad. You should have thought of that beforehand. He very much was enjoying his authority. He wrote the ticket to me, and in my arrogance at the moment, which I don't, I'm not proud of, I said to him, well, I'm definitely contesting this. He was like, go right ahead. So the day of, of the court hearing came up, and I come into court, and Officer Day is sitting, if I'm here, he's sitting like right over there uh, near where the poster's sitting. And uh, I can see him, he's back, he's looking down, he's going over something. The judge calls my name. I walk up to the, to the bench and no lie, Officer Day has brought a file. He has gone back to the scene of the crime and taken photographs of it. He has sketched out the parking lot so that the judge can see what I did. And he had a couple of other papers as well to help prove his case against me. So the judge asks him what I had done, and he explains my offense. The judge, I think, cuts him off and says, how do you plead? I say, no contest. I explain my reasoning, ask for mercy. The judge is like, that's fine, don't do it again, case dismissed. And the look on Officer Day's face was priceless. <laughs> he was not happy about being uh, 
about being uh, undone by their, uh, my defense. I almost lost this status, by the way, Wednesday night. No lie. Okay. I'm coming home. Actually, I was not going home. I was going to get Jamie. She was up at her sister's house. Uh, I was coming from small group, and I'm going away from Damneck Base on Damneck uh, Road. I'm going to make a right on General Booth Boulevard. And it's a yield, and I'm looking over, and there's a car coming, but I think he's in the next lane. So I pull out. And you know at that moment when you start to go, and you're kind of committed, and you look, and you're like, uh-uh, this was bad. He's not in the other lane. He's behind me. And I'm like, oh, man, I just take that guy off, slows down right on my bumper. And as soon as he's on my bumper, I'm like, oh, no, it's a police officer. <laughs> please be Dan or Kathy. Please be Dan or Kathy. Sorry, it wasn't either of you. He pulls me over, but in his kindness, he just chided me and let me go for uh, uh, cutting him off. Um, where was I? I got caught up in my stories. Oh, yeah. So I'm still in this very unique uh, people group here of no traffic tickets. I don't know how long that will last, but I hope to stay there forever. I, I say that to say that all of us are in certain people groups, okay? We, we all have peoples or, or groups that we're a part of. We're all a part of an ethnic people group, whatever ethnicity you may have. We're all part of a national people group. We're Americans. We're all part of a cultural people group, an occupational people group, a neighborhood people group. But beyond all of these... Every single one of us in this room, myself included, are a part of one of two universal people groups. Something that transcends every border, every nation, every language, and all time. And it's whether or not we're a part of the people of God or or the people of the world. It's really just that simple. This is the question that we've come to here in Genesis 4. Of what people group are we a part of? And since we've taken a couple weeks off from the text, I thought I would just quickly recap where we're at here in the story of Genesis 4. This chapter is most commonly known as the story of who? Cain and Abel, right? It's normally associated with being the story about the first murder. And that's fine. I I don't mind you think of it in that terms as long as you understand now that that is not all this chapter is about, that it's about much more. Yes, Cain and Abel are characters in this story, but they're not the focus of this story because this story isn't just about one thing. It's about two things or, in fact, two sets of two things. It's a story about the differences between two kinds of people as well as about the differences between two kinds of peoples. And so we've taken our last few weeks here in Genesis 4 to understand the difference between the first set of two, what I call the tale of two people, and that's where we focused on Cain and Abel here in the story. You know, what was the difference between these two boys? What was, or why did God accept one and reject the other? And we saw that the answer to those questions came back to the issue of faith, of belief. Here you have Abel, who clearly believes that God is who he says he is. And so, because of that faith, because of that belief, he responds accordingly. Cain, on the other hand, apparently does not believe that God is who he says he is. And therefore, he responds accordingly as well. And you think about this. These two boys have the same experiences, the same knowledge, the same understanding of God. Everything is identical between the two of them, and yet one believes and one does not. And the application or understanding that came out of that is that everyone who has ever lived, past, present, or future, falls into one of these two categories. 
Either they believe that God is who he says he is or that they don't. Okay, It's just that simple. And whatever choice they make, they will live accordingly. Either they will believe and live accordingly or they will not believe and live accordingly either way. But please remember that the differences shown to us here in this first tale have to do with individual people. Okay, Every person, every individual makes this choice. And God will accept or reject individuals based on that choice. Okay, so the first tale focuses on the person, but not the second tale. Second tale is different. It runs from verse 17 all the way to the end of the chapter. We haven't looked at this at all yet, so today is our first and only time here in these verses. And it doesn't focus on the individual person, but on the people with whom they're connected. Okay? It's stepping away from the, from the one, the look at just one, and now looking at the whole. No more part. Now we're looking at, at the whole here. It's a tale of two kinds of peoples that is focused on the groups or communities or families that will come over time from the choices that we've seen here in Genesis 4. And the question for us today is, why did Moses include this section? What's the value of it? Is, it? is he just giving us a little bit of extra information to finish it out? Because I don't know about you, I hate when movies end and you, you don't know what happens to the characters long term. I wish they would always include that in movies. Is that what Moses is doing? Because he knows that we would like to know. So here, here, here's what happens to Cain. Here's what happens to Adam and Eve. That way you can see it. Uh, no, that's not his reasoning as well. Because everything that's given to us in this story is important. It's intended to show us what happened to that perfect world back in chapter 1 and at the same time help us understand our own world better today. And so let me begin by pointing out to you two features here in the story that you need to be aware of right off the bat. These will help you understand what Moses is trying to do with this story. So first... Notice the similarities between the first and second tale here in chapter 4, particularly in terms of how they begin and end, because this is important. In verse 1, beginning of the first tale, Moses begins that story by telling us that Adam and Eve had sex. And if you think I'm just pointing that out for its shock value, which I have been accused of on more than one occasion, I'm not doing it for shock value. I want you to hear it as bluntly as the first hearers would have heard it. Because when they were in the wilderness and it's being read to them for the first time, the significance of this would have stood out and be like, whoa, what's, what's going on? And so it forces us to stop and say, why is Moses including this detail? What does he want us to understand here? Why is it so significant? Well, I think that the reason he finds it significant is because it shows that they are doing what God has made them to do in terms of his creative plan. And from that act then comes a child, Cain, And Eve names that child for a reason that you see listed there in verse 1. And so we have a pattern established. Make sure you see it because it's important. Number one, there's sex. Number two, there's conception. She conceived. Number three, there's birth. And number four, there's naming. You see all four pieces in verse 1. That's how the first tale begins. Now look down at verse 17. Because you're going to see the same pattern followed again. Cain knew his wife. And she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. The pattern here is identical, 
though the application of the pattern is different. There's sex, there's conception, there's birth, and then there's naming, but it's a little bit different this time, and we'll come back in a few minutes and talk about the difference. For now, just notice that the stories begin in identical identical patterns. They're following the same pattern here. Notice also the ending of the stories. They end in a similar way. It's not quite as clear as the beginning at first, but when you see it, I think you'll understand. In verse 16, Moses gives us a summary statement to close out the first story. He says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And what I tried to stress to you when we went over that verse was not what Cain was moving towards, but what he was walking away from. Do you understand the difference? It's not where he's going that's as important as what he's leaving behind. He is making a purposeful choice to leave the presence of the Lord. He's making a choice to live a godless life. And so Moses ties Cain's decision here at the end of the story directly to God himself. He's not just simply leaving because he needs a change of scenery or because it's going to be awkward at dinner now that he's killed his brother and he has to go back to mom and dad's house. That's not the problem. The issue is tied directly to the Lord, and you see that King's decision to walk away from him is his response to God. Now, notice the end of the second story. It says, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And again, Moses is wanting to summarize the second story for us by drawing our attention back to man's response to God. In that sense, they're similar. Each time the story ends, he wants you to see how the character or the characters in question respond to the Lord. The first story ends by man rejecting God. The second story ends by people calling on his name. And I point this out to you just to prove that Moses isn't telling this story in a haphazard way. There's pattern here. There's a a plan. There's a reason why he's structuring it the way he is. We'll get to that in just a moment. The second feature I want to point out to you before we actually dig in the story is the chronology that Moses follows here in the story, and you're like, wow, that sounds riveting. The chronology of the story? Let's dig right in. All right. Notice that after recounting the birth of Cain's first son in verse 17, and I'm not going to put this on here because it's too much, notice that Moses then follows that one line of Cain's descendants out for seven generations. Okay, if you have your Bible, you can count with me. You've got Cain, Enoch, Erod, Mahuyel, Methushael, Lamech, and then you have Lamech's four children, Jubal, Jabal, Tubal-Cain, and Nama. That's seven generations that he has counted out for us here in the story. And as you may know, the number seven is significant to Moses, particularly here in Genesis, as it tends to communicate the idea of completion or fullness. He, he wants you to understand something. Now, pause. Quick warning. Be careful with how you apply that comment I just made about how the number seven is significant and, and communicates this or that. Don't go looking for random sevens in the Old Testament as people are prone to do. Be like, I found this word. It's got seven letters, and that means it's important. It's an English dummy. He wrote it in Hebrew. It's not important. 
only look for the sevens when they're clearly there in the context, when they have value. Context will be your key because sometimes it's legitimate to do this and sometimes it's not. Well, here it is significant because Moses wants to show us what happens to Cain's descendants. And so he follows them out for seven generations so that we can see the fullness or the completion of what comes from Cain's decisions back in the first story. Once he's done that and we're out here, he then jumps back in time to Adam and Eve again and to the birth of Seth here on this new line. Now, you say, okay, great, I understand that, but what does that tell us? Well, here's what it tells us. When people are just telling a normal story, they follow the normal pattern, which is chronological. A happened, then B happened, then C happened, then D happened, and so on and so forth. So whenever you see an author, particularly a biblical author, change that around and take a different approach to telling a story, that's your clue that there's a reason. There's something he's trying to emphasize to you that you need to be paying attention to. It's not, that's not difficult to understand. It's clear. He's laid it right out for you. It's right in front of your face. So when we see this, we need to be asking the question, what's he trying to communicate? And so these features here act as clues and markers to draw our attention to what Moses is trying to communicate through the story. And so having clarified that, okay, there's your foundation. Let's look at the two people groups that he gives us and see what it is that he's trying to get across. Let's start with the people of Cain. Because the story of Cain's descendants that he gives here, which takes up most of the time, is interesting for so many reasons. And I'm not going to cover everything this morning. It's just too much. But I am going to hit the highlights. Notice that the story begins with Cain and his wife. And yes, if you're wondering, his wife must be his sister, okay? People ask that question. Uh, I'm assuming it has to be her because there's no other women around, which means that the land of Nod where he's dwelling is roughly equivalent to the modern-day land of West Virginia, if you want to place it somewhere, okay? (laughs) Sorry, Andrew, I had to take it. (laughs) He's our only West Virginian in the room. Uh, I know that this is a weird and disgusting concept to us, Because it is weird and disgusting, that's why it feels that way to us. But obviously, at this point in the story, at this point in God's plan, this is all there is. And God was okay with that, otherwise he would have created other options. Later he will forbid this, but not yet. And so you have Cain and his wife. Number two, they have a child whom they name Enoch. And yet we're not told why they choose that name. It's, It's not given. We're simply told that that Cain is going to name a city that he builds after his son. And what stands out to me about that is the very man-centered way in which this naming takes place. In other words, when Eve named Cain at the beginning of the first story, she attributes that act to the Lord. I I take verse 1 as being a statement of faith in God, that he's going to keep his promises, that offspring will come. Yet when you see Cain naming something, It isn't something that God has given him. It's something that he has made himself. In fact, notice, and this is just a a technicality, but it's interesting to me anyway. If it's interesting to you, great. The text never says that they named Enoch, just that they had him. Now, we can assume that they named him, but it doesn't emphasize the fact that they did that. It emphasizes the fact that he named the city, this thing that he made after his son. And so I think Moses is trying to draw our attention to Cain's self-centeredness. That's all that's put on display there in that, in that concept. Third, think about this city for a moment. 
When you read the word city here, please do not think like downtown Manhattan. Don't even think of downtown Pungo. The, the, the word city that's being used here in Hebrew is a very loose concept. It really just means a settlement. You could have nothing more than an area of cleared ground with like some logs around you to provide some kind of protection or border, and that would be a city using this word here. And you say, okay, great, what does that matter though? Remember what God had told Cain back in his pronouncement against him in the first story? That he would be a wanderer on the earth? Well, if he's supposed to be a wanderer, why is he building a city? I take it, again, as just another act of rebellion that he's attempting even to rebel against what God had pronounced against him by creating the settlement for himself and naming it after his son. And so in verse 17, you see Cain continuing to act in rebellion and in a very man-centered way with everything that happens there in that verse. Well, the story progresses. Enoch has a kid, and that kid has a kid, and so on and so forth. And you notice that for the majority of these people, no information is given, just that they were born and that they had a child, until you get to Lamech. Now, Lamech is important. And I want you to listen very carefully to a statement I'm about to make. Tuck it in your head, because we're going to come back to it in chapter 5. Lamech is the seventh from Adam and the sixth from Cain. We're talking about generations. He's the seventh from Adam and the sixth from Cain, There's a clue to something you're going to see in chapter 5. I'll let you think about it. Lamech is the next most important character in the story for three reasons. Number one, his marriages stand out to us. Moses draws our attention to the fact that he takes two wives and that it stands out to Moses, who lives in a society where polygamy is common, that it stands out to Moses indicates to me that Lamech is probably the first one to do this. And while Moses offers no comment on this act, just from what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, we know this isn't right. It's an aberration on God's plan. God didn't make Adam, Eve, and Eva so that they could be one happy group together. He made one man and one woman and brought them together in marriage. This is God's plan. That concept will be confirmed over and over again throughout the Old and New Testament. And so Lamech's act here is a further act of rebellion, a further aberration from what God had intended for them, and so he stands out in that way. Number two, his children stand out because Moses wants to draw our attention to his three sons and what they do. Jabel pioneers tent making and shepherding. In other words, it's manufacturing and farming. And it doesn't mean that he's the first person to work in these things, just that he's the one who is associated with it. He's the one who is known for it. Abel worked with sheep, but apparently not like Jabel did. These are critical skills if you have a civilization that is going to thrive. The next son, Jubal, pioneers music. In other words, cultural development. He brings aesthetics and beauty to this new civilization. And then Tubal-Cain pioneers metallurgy. He's the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. He brings mining and the processing of metals to this new civilization. These are impressive advancements, particularly here in this pre-flood world. Number three, his murder stands out. Because in verses 23 and 24, Lamech wants to sing us a song. 
And when I've read it to you, I've tried to give it that cadence so that you would hear a little bit of what's going on in this, in this section. But he sings this song to his wives, yet it's not a love song. It's a song of vengeance or vindication. He boasts to them, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And it's important to note here that there's nothing in his wording that indicates that his actions are justified. In other words, when it says that this young man has wounded him or has injured him, it doesn't indicate that it was purposeful. Maybe it was, but it could also have just be an accident. When he uses this word for wounding here, it could be a physical injury. It could just be that he wounded his pride. There, there's no indication, even in Lamech's own words, that his actions are justified, and yet, Regardless of that, he's boasting about it. He doesn't just kill them, he sings a song about it. And in this respect, he's very different than Cain. Because Cain also killed a man. Except when Cain killed a man, and the Lord came asking, what did Cain do? He hid it. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He didn't boast about it to anyone in the story, nor to the Lord himself. And yet here comes Lamech, very um, impressed by himself about what he's done, singing a song about it to his wife. And if that's not enough, notice how he ends his song by invoking Cain's protection on himself. If, if Cain will be avenged sevenfold, then I will be avenged seventy-sevenfold. He, he takes God's promise of protection to Cain, applies it to himself without ever once referencing the one who, made, who, who gave the pronouncement. Never mentions the Lord. He feels 100% justified in his actions, and he presumes on the Lord's promise to Cain without ever mentioning the Lord directly. This is, this is the people of Cain. This is what he wants you to understand about them. Now, look at the people of Seth. It's only, it's only two verses for now. And I add the words for now because in reality whether you realize it or not, before when you read these words, what we're about to read will dictate everything else in the Scriptures through the end of Revelation. Everything. This is the beginning of the biblical story in in some respects. Because it's through Seth that we're going to get to Noah. And it's through Noah that we're going to get to Abraham. And it's through Abraham we'll get to Judah. And through Judah we'll get to David and through David that we'll get to Christ. This is the line. This is the story that will be the rest of the story. And so even though this is only two verses here in this chapter, this is the beginning of the rest. And look at what it says. Adam knew his wife again. She had a son named Seth. And his name is, again, a statement of faith that God has not given up on His promise to bring an offspring. God has replaced Abel. The line will continue. Seth has a son. He names him Enosh, which is a fitting and significant name because the name Enosh means weakness, frailty, inability, that kind of a concept. And it is to this line of weakness that Moses attributes the highest possible compliment. He says here that it is at this time that people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. 
You say, what does that mean to call upon the name of the Lord? What's he saying about them? Well, as you look through the Old Testament at all the times this phrase is used, it can mean a number of things. You can think of words like prayer or worship or obedience or submission or service. It's indicating that these people see Yahweh as something significant, as someone significant, and want to give their lives to Him. These people that we read about in these two verses are not really, then, the people of Seth. These people are the people of the Lord. Now, what do you take from all of this? What do we learn? Well, let's begin by thinking about the people of Cain. And don't answer this question out loud, but I want you to think about it. How would you describe the people of Cain? I thought of words like accomplished, because they do some amazing things. I thought of the word prosperous, a fruitful. There's children continuing on. There's a line. Cultured, advanced, creative, But more than all of those, one word in particular should stand out to you, and I hope it's already in your head. It's the word godless. Completely and totally godless. Because from the moment verse 17 begins all the way to the end of verse 24, God is unmistakably absent from the description of these people. Even when Lamech referenced the promise of God, He didn't even mention him by name, no reference to him himself. He's completely absent. It's striking, really, because it's the first time in this story that God has been absent. Even when we were back in in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, watching Adam and Eve rebel against the Lord, both they and Satan at least talked about him. (laughs) He's not absent in that sense. He's, He's mentioned. They understand he's there. But not in these verses. At the time we get to Cain and his descendants, even talk of God has faded from the picture. This is, this is quite a digression. And please understand something here, because I really don't want to be misunderstood on this point. I am not saying to you that this means that every single individual that descended from Cain was like this. Moses doesn't say that. I'm not saying it either. I can't say that any more than I can say that everyone who descended from Seth called upon the name of the Lord. Because you, you realize that by the time we get to chapter 6 and we're looking at the line of Seth, that out of all of Seth's descendants, how many are righteous? Take a guess. Noah. All of these children that's going to come from Seth and his line, by the time we get to chapter 6, one is left who's righteous. So I'm not making comments here about individual people in either line. Moses isn't making those comments either. He's simply giving us a general understanding that there are two peoples, each taking a very different track, one from the other. Cain's line, godless. Seth's line at this point, calling upon the name of the Lord. He's distinguishing between these groups of people for us. It's just that simple. And so the very first thing you learn, the thing I think that is critical to Moses as he's trying to communicate truth to Israel, is that the world will always be divided into these two peoples. Always. You're either a part of the people of the Lord, or you're not. There's no third group. There's there's no other options. 
You either call upon His name or you do not. Nothing else. Just that simple. And so we learn that everyone who has ever lived, is alive today, or ever will live in the future will belong to one of these two people groups, guaranteed. But, but I think there's something else even more significant than that that we learn here. And this is where I want to close for us this morning. From this moment forward in the biblical story to today, God will never again be without a people. Think about that very carefully. From this moment forward, throughout the rest of biblical history, even to today, God will never be without a people. Now, sometimes, sometimes that people will be very small, but, but he will always have a people. So that in Genesis 6, we're going to see that his, his people is one family of eight individuals, Noah and his wife, the three sons and their wives, that God takes onto the ark to protect them because God loves his people. You're going to see that over and over again. By the time we get to Genesis 12, his people will again be just one family. It's the family of Abraham. And so God takes his family out of Ur and makes them his own. By the time we advance another few hundred years, his people's grown quite a bit. Now it's the nation of Israel, the, the people whom Moses is writing the story for and to. They are now his chosen people. And then for us today, we see that he's still have. He still has a people. He's building a new people. This time not based on family or national origins, but this time based on the death of His Son. Because if you're here today and you've placed your faith in Jesus, then you are a part of the people of God. And as such, we're connected to all the other people of God around the world today and throughout all human history. Churches across Virginia Beach and Chesapeake and Norfolk, all across America, all around the world. We, we saw it this morning in the video we watched, uh, the, the dispatches from the front, as, as Dr. Kazee was visiting churches on the Pacific edge, seeing how the gospel is working there. These little tiny churches dwelling in squalor. There are brothers, there are sisters. We are part of the people of God with them. This extends back in time so that we're one with the apostles Paul and John and Peter, with David and Abraham and Moses and Noah and Seth and even Adam. What we see here is that God is working in one continuous line within and through His people to accomplish His purposes on this earth. But, but none of that's possible without Christ. See, he's the glue that binds it all together. Apart from him, there is no people of God. So that Paul in Galatians 3 can say, look, there's neither Jew nor Greek now. No slave or free. There's not even male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. People read that and they're like, how can that be the case? We're not Jewish. We're Gentiles. How can we be one with Abraham? I'll tell you how. Through Christ. Because we're one people with Him. It continues on so that by the time we reach the end of God's plan and revelation, a scene that I assume many of us will be a part of. You're reading your future. You read these words here. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number. They're not all related. You see this? Because they're from every nation. 
from all tribes and peoples and languages. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they're crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, it's true. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is our future. To be one with God's people. What we see in the room today, just look around you. I know this is maybe a little hokey, but just look around at all the faces sitting in here right now. This is one little slice of something much, much larger that God has been working since Genesis 1. It's been his plan to build a people for the glory of his name through the death of his son. Look, if you're, not here, if you're here today and, and you have never placed your faith in Christ, then this is your notice. You are part of a people. Everyone is. You're part of the people who do not call upon the name of the Lord, who are living in rebellion against Him. And God is pleading with you today, be mine. He's willing to adopt you, to make you His child, His son, through the death of Christ. And if you are here today and you are a believer, then we should rejoice in what God has done for us in making us His own. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are overwhelmed at what we see to realize that you have had a plan since before the foundation of the world to redeem a people for yourself. And that as we sit in this room today, we are a part of that plan. You knew our names before Genesis 1-1. You have seen this all. You have loved us with an everlasting love in Christ. And so, Father, this morning we just begin with rejoicing, thanking you that we can be a part of your family, of your children, of your people, that you would humble yourself to include sinners as vile as us. Thank you, Lord. There are so many around the world people we will never see, we'll never know their names, who this morning, sometime today, all throughout this week, will call on your name just like we're doing today and will live our lives completely separate from them on this earth. But one day, we know a day is coming when we will gather together around your throne and we will sing the song that we read there in Revelation 7. That we will once and for all be one people, one family together in Christ. And so, Lord, we rejoice and we thank you this morning. And we are humbled and we are grateful more than words can say. We ask that the Spirit in us speak the words our hearts cannot utter to you in thanksgiving and gratitude this morning. And, Lord, our hearts then are pierced for all those who are not a part of your family, for the peoples all around the world who have lived their lives in rebellion against you and continue to do so today. We know that your heart's desire is to draw from all peoples everywhere, 
the peoples around us in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our family, in our circle of friends, in this country, in this continent, around the world, Lord, you have a plan to draw them to yourself. And Lord, we want to be a part of that plan. And so, Father, will you help us to be faithful, to share the gospel, to speak truth, to, to invite, to be an ambassador to those, to, be, to those who don't know you, to be reconciled to you in Christ. Lord, send your spirit before us. Do the work we cannot do to open eyes to trouble hearts until they see that there is no other hope apart from Jesus. Lord, we love you. We are thankful this morning. And we ask that you will help us live as the people that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.